Hi again, Gary Zacharias with The Apologist Bookshelf. I'd like to share a book today with you uh, called 77 FAQs About God and the Bible by Josh and Sean McDowell. You know, Josh has spoken to something like 10 million people over the years, and Sean is uh, going like gangbusters, creating all sorts of books. And we've had uh, Sean at our church before. Uh, excellent resource. Hope you can go to YouTube and uh, look at some of his books. So they put out a book about 10 years ago. Uh, it's not that big, a uh, couple hundred pages, and it's a good one to, to hand out to people, and it's a, certainly a good one to go over yourself. So it's 77 FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions About God and the Bible. And uh, let me just give you a quick uh, rundown as far as the outline of it. And then I want to take on three or four chapters because each one is real bite-sized. It's so nice. This is an introductory book. It won't answer all your questions, but it certainly gets you thinking. So the first section is called Questions About God. And I'm just going to rattle off a few of them here. What does it mean that God's a trinity? Um, can God do wrong, like get jealous? Because it talks about him being jealous. What is evil and what causes people to sin today? And if God's so loving, why can't he be more tolerant of sin? And uh, is he sexist? Is God racist? Is God violent? I know where they're getting this because a lot of the uh, new atheists are bringing out questions like that. How do we know Jesus actually lived? Uh, how did he back up his claim to be God? What proof was that is there that Jesus was the Messiah? So all sorts of questions about God. There are 50 questions about God. And then uh, 27 questions about the Bible. So questions like, where do we get the Bible? Is it a product of God or humans? Isn't it full of errors and contradictions? We hear that one all the time. Are all of the Old Testament laws binding on us today? What's the difference between the Bible and the Quran or the Bible and the Book of Mormon? How does the Roman Catholic Bible differ from Protest the Protestant Bible? Uh, what about the translations? Are they, uh, are they inaccurate or are they accurate? How do I experience the Bible? What resources do I need to interpret the Bible? So excellent, excellent questions in here. Let me just pick out a few of the chapters at the beginning. I certainly want to come back to this book. This is the first podcast that I've uh, done on this particular book. So let's take uh, chapter two. Why does God seem hidden from us? And they point out, you know, you can't just pray a prayer and snap your fingers and boom, there's God and he answers everything. And they point out actually probably if they, even if God did that, that may not still persuade people to believe in him. But he remains hidden as a material being. Um, well, that's obvious, isn't it? He's spirit, so he is invisible to us. But they point out too that God is hidden because he's a holy God and we are imperfect and unholy and we're contaminated with evil. And Habakkuk says God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. So the spirit form of God is too much for us to stand, and he must remain hidden from us. But he wants a relationship, and he has enabled us to know him through Jesus. So Jesus has come and gives us a, a vision, a view of God. And then he came and atoned for our sins. So it says, uh, how else does he reveal himself? Certainly he did through Jesus, but through creation. We see that in the first chapter of Romans. The conscience that we all have, that's Romans 2. He reveals himself through his word, 2 Timothy 3. Through the church, that's Ephesians 1. Through history, we see that in 1 Samuel 17. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Romans 8. So God may be hidden from us in a material, physical sense, but he's evident. 
He is definitely evident in the life of a child of God who's been redeemed through Christ. And of course, they come back again that the, the greatest way that God revealed himself was through the person of Jesus Christ when he was here on earth. And um, they, they end that little chapter, and it's only like a page and a half. That's what I mean. You can get through these really quickly, uh, like eating peanuts or something. You know, On one level, the hidden aspect of God, they say, is not a negative thing. His hiddenness can actually have a positive result. He tells the children of Israel in Jeremiah 29, If you look for me in earnest, you'll find me. When you seek me, I'll be found by you. Or in Luke 11, seek and you will find. That's what Jesus said. So God wants us to seek him, kind of like a hidden treasure, and discover all the riches that he has. So there's the first uh, chapter that I wanted to do. Uh, why is God so hidden? I would suggest, too, uh, you know, another reason is, like they point out, that he doesn't want to overwhelm us. He wants us to have free choice. So there's just enough of him there to give us hints, but not enough where we're forced to bow our knee whether we wanted to or not. So that's chapter two. Here's chapter three. Doesn't believing in God require faith? Now that gets back to what do we mean by faith? And Greg Kokel has done a lot to it. And then their chapter here says, don't all religion questions, religious questions belong in the realm of faith? And they point out that a lot of people misunderstand what faith is. <clears throat> you know, for, for many people, it means you just throw away your mind and believe blindly. But that's not what biblical faith is. And they take the reader to Hebrews 11.1. 1, and this is the New American Standard Version. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So then the question comes up, where did the assurance and conviction of our faith come from? It comes from knowledge or evidence of things hoped for and not seen. It's, it's your knowledge of something that allows you to trust in it. And it's seeing the evidence that gives your faith confidence. So it's not a blind faith that operates without any kind of reason to believe. It looks at the evidence. Christian faith is looking at the evidence and then placing your trust in Jesus. In fact, one of the reasons the apostles of Jesus recorded many of his signs it was exactly this. Look at John 20. These signs are written down so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So the evidence was there, and then the faith comes. They give an example. It said every time you fly in an airplane, you're exercising faith. You may not even see the pilot, but you trust him. You may not have seen the engineers or the machinists and the people that built the aircraft, but you believe the plane is airworthy. Where do you get that assurance? Is it blind faith? You just hop on the plane and have no reason to believe that it's going to get you there? Well, you've placed your faith in the knowledge of the record of that airline's uh, performance and safety. You trust the FAA that has rules and regulations, the government being involved. So there is overwhelming evidence. And that knowledge of that evidence gives you conviction, gives you assurance of your belief. They go to the Old Testament and give you an example of this. God sends Moses to Pharaoh. We know that one. That's a great story. And God works all sorts of miraculous acts to convince Pharaoh to let the children go, and finally he does. And that evidence of God's might had a tremendous impact on Israel. And this is a quote from Exodus 14. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and his servant Moses. I mean, do you see what's going on there? That's obviously a very, very 
um, outstanding example. That's the way Christian faith works. It says, first, they saw. It says, when the people of Israel saw what power God had, then they put their faith in the Lord. God didn't just say, just have faith in me. He showed them. Really powerful. It said, you know, the, the problem is that it's really hard to come up with exhaustive evidence for believing in anything. But you can find sufficient evidence to establish that what you believe is credible and objectively true. And the deeper our convictions grow, then the stronger our faith will be in the person of uh, God. Why is your faith so important to God? Because if you have a strong and pure faith in him, that's a faith that has knowledge of who he is. God wants us to know him for the true God that he is. He wants us to rely on him during trying times, to know that he's there no matter what. Jesus prays in John 17, this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. So knowing God and having faith in him is to trust our lives. The more that we get to know him, the more trust that we can put in him. So I thought that was a really good point. Well, let's look at, uh, let's do another chapter. Here's chapter five. What kind of proofs are there that God exists? And they do several chapters on this, so I'm not going to do all of them, but they said, um, look at the laws of nature, the laws of nature. They are so narrowly defined parameters that have to be exactly right, kind of like a wall full of dials, and they all have to be twisted just to the right amount there to allow humans to exist. They said that scientists, of course, this is back in 2012 when they wrote the book, so that's been a little while ago, and they said there are at least 18 physical laws that have to be in perfect harmony for the universe and for planet Earth to be set up for complex life. Then they just rattle off some examples, laws of gravity, conservation of energy, thermodynamics, strong nuclear force, electromagnetic force, and on and on. If any of these laws just differed slightly, you wouldn't have life. So they give you one example. So the McDowell say, consider the strong nuclear force. That's what holds the center, the nucleus of an atom. That's what holds it together. You have protons and neutrons are in, in the atom. Within the nuclei, they exchange subparticles. The protons are then bound together by the strong force. Even though they have positive charges that would normally repel each other, and the atom stays intact. They said to see one of the examples of a strong force, some of the results, says take the sun's production of nuclear energy. The sun burns, I mean, that's kind of a, yeah, uh, an idea, not true. But anyway, it's how we picture it. The sun burns and produces energy to sustain the earth. It fuses, brings hydrogen atoms together. And when they fuse, a little bit of their mass is converted to energy. And then they ask, okay, but... What if that matter, that percentage of matter that's converted to energy is a little bit smaller? They said if the conversion was 0.6% instead of 0.7%, the proton couldn't bond to the neutron, and the universe would consist only of hydrogen. So if there's only hydrogen, there's no planet Earth, no sun, nothing. They said, okay, well, what if that matter being converted to energy was just a little bit larger from 0.7% to 0.8%? Well, fusion would happen so quickly that no hydrogen could survive. That means there'd be no life. So they're saying, that's just one example. The universe is so finely tuned that those tiny hydrogen atoms have to give up exactly a certain percent of their mass in the form of energy. And they said, that's just one example. And there's dozens of examples 
the show our universe is finely tuned to such an just an incredible degree and they said it's unthinkable that that originated by chance they said it's almost like some intelligent agent prepared earth with a welcome sign that said i made this for you and then they quote from psalm 19 i love that uh, section of the bible the heavens declare the i'm sorry i'll start again the heavens proclaim the glory of god the skies display his craftsmanship day after day they continue to speak night after night they make him known they speak without a sound or word their voice is never heard yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world that's excellent isn't it so there's one reason why can we believe there's a god because things are highly crafted things are designed to such a fine degree that happenstance and chance is not going to allow that i'll do one more that's related to that they call this the first cause argument for God's existence. So one reason for God's existence we just covered in chapter 5, that's the fine-tuning argument. This one says, what about what they call it the first cause? And here's the deal. It's also called the cosmological argument. So the premise is that anything that begins to exist, anything that begins to exist has to have a cause. Now, if you go back in time far enough, there's got to be a first cause that gets everything going and starts those dominoes falling, and that is the Creator God. So they said you can break this argument down into three premises. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. They said, well, that first premise, whatever begins to exist has a cause, that says we got a universe here, and it can't spring from nothing. So how does that happen? The universe had had to have something to cause it to come into existence. Now, the second one says the universe began to exist. Scientists today all agree on that. If the universe was uh, ageless, had no beginning, it would have used up all of its energy. The sun would have been burned out, but it's not. And there's other scientific evidence for the universe beginning to exist. There's the red shift, all the galaxies flying apart, the cosmic background, microwave radiation, kind of like when you have a, an ex, a, you cook something in your oven and then take something out, there's still going to be residual heat there. So we've got that, uh, the implication of Einstein's general theory of relativity. All these things argue that the universe had a cause. So let's go over those three points again. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. We all know that. Number two, the universe began to exist. Scientists agree on that. Well, the conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause that has a cause. And then the question is, of course, the big question is, what caused this cause? How do you get a universe here? And they said, well, the origins of matter and space and time and energy are what's involved here. Since these things did not exist before the beginning of the universe, they're part of the universe, then the cause of the universe has to be outside of matter, space, time, and energy. It has to be something that's timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. And it can't be physical. It can't be subject to natural law because that would presuppose that it, it, that it was there while space and time and matter were there. But this is outside of the natural world, this cause. It has to be. It can't be part of the universe. And so what do we call something that's outside the natural universe? We call it supernatural. So you take it together, this timeless, spaceless, immaterial cause was God. So that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, they, they point out at the end here, that of course, it doesn't take you all the way back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it rules out atheism as an explanation for the origin of the universe. 
So there you go. There are the first uh, four of the uh, fascinating questions that are asked and, and some wonderful answers that they give here. And again, it's just a, uh, an introductory book. Uh, you certainly want to go into more detail on some of these if you uh, cared about them, but it's a really nice way to get a, a big picture view of questions that people have regarding God and the Bible. Again, it's called 77 FAQs about God and the Bible by the McDowell. So I thank them for all their work over the years. They've done tremendous work for the kingdom. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll do another podcast really soon.